All right, welcome. It's great to see you all. Uh, we're going to pray because we have some work to do this evening. And so we're in Ecclesiastes 7. So if you've got your Bibles, do turn to that. A big welcome to those of you who are at home. And um, as ever, just a reminder, you are most welcome to chime in with questions and comments and input. And if you do, we have, where is he, Aaron Capone? Where is he? There he is. Aaron and Joshua Capone are sitting around a laptop um, and they will field your questions and pretend that they're your own. They're, they're own if they're good questions and, and name and shame you if they're dumb questions. But there are no dumb questions, so there are really no dumb questions. So if you've got a question you think is dumb, you can guarantee somebody else is probably thinking of it, so you're helping them. Enough. Anyway, let's pray and then we'll begin. Merciful Father, who gave his son for our redemption and has poured out his spirit for our illumination and life. Merciful Father, would you please refresh us once again by the spirit of uh, joy and insight, the spirit of wisdom, uh, the spirit of knowledge, the spirit of godliness, so that as we listen and speak this evening, we will be doing so uh, in a way which is open to your voice and to your work in us. And as we seek to wrestle with the complexities of life, as your servant Kohelet, the preacher, King Solomon, uh, lays them out, we will be made more like the greater Solomon, our Lord Jesus, in whom we are one with you and in whose name we now pray. Amen. So, that was a great gurgle from Melody. Was that, was that Melody's first contribution audibly to a gathering at All Saints? It might have been. Has she ever done a howler? She growled two weeks ago. But has, has she done a screamer or a howler yet? She's not. Okay, go on, Melody. That's what I'm talking about. Come on, baby. Get those lungs working. So um, we've got Ecclesiastes 7.14 to the end of this chapter. The title for today's Bible study, if you like Bible study titles, is That's Not Fair. We, we used to have a sign on our fridge back in England that said, this is a no-whining zone. So that little, oh, down here, would have been outlawed. All right, Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity, be joy, joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. I mean, that's probably enough to be going on with, frankly, for the whole of the evening. But I'm going to read till the end of the chapter. In my vain life, I've seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness. And there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man, more than ten rulers who are in a city. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Do not take to heart all the things that people say, 
lest you hear your servant cursing you. Your heart knows that many times you have yourself cursed others. All this I have tested by wisdom. I said, I'll be wise, but it was far from me. That which has been is far off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turned my heart to know and to seek out and search by wisdom the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And I find something more bitter than death. The woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God escapes her, but the sinner is taken by her. Behold, this is what I found, says the preacher, while adding one thing to another to find the scheme of things, which my soul has sought repeatedly, but I have not found. One man among a thousand I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. See, this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes." So turn back and look at verse 14 with me. And um, as we begin thinking about this evening, I want to share with you a couple of things we prayed for today in our session meeting. We had a session meeting today, um, Pastor Neil and me and uh, Elders Capone and Douglas. And we, we had a bunch of stuff to talk about, but we began with prayer for um, uh, four people, actually. Uh, I'll tell you about two of them. Two of them, uh, they have made public what they asked us to pray for and so I'm, I'm pretty sure they'd appreciate our prayers and um and that they wouldn't mind me making it public here um so one um pastor steve wilkins uh of uh church of the redeemer in monroe louisiana uh aged 70 years old he's been diagnosed with prostate cancer and it turns out to be um the nasty form like the really 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 nasty form and uh, he requested prayer i I don't really understand the medical details, but um, uh, it's, uh, I guess it's not a great outlook. Um, we don't know at the moment what the outlook is or what course he'll take with the treatment, but he asked us to pray for him, and so we did. The other is a um, young girl whose grandma is just sitting over here, little Florence. Do you call her Flo or Flowey? Flo. Flo, who's the granddaughter of Doug and Becky, um, uh, and the daughter of Daniel and Mercy Call, who used to be members here, they left around about the time that Nicole and I and the family came. I don't think it was anything personal. Um, but dear darling little Flo um, went into hospital for a check about one thing, and they discovered she has leukemia. Is that right? Which is not what they were looking for. And mercifully, if I'm understanding it rightly, it it's, looks like this is a the kind that lots of research has been done on, is that right? Um, and so the outlook is not bad, but it's still not great for a three-year-old to have such a serious disease. Um, she's three years old, is that right? She's three, little baby girl. And I read, um, I don't read Facebook very often nowadays for all kinds of reasons, but I did read what her, her mum wrote. And it was really heartbreaking to, you know, she's quite open, I think, Mercy, about um, how she feels often, um, and she really kind of laid bare the kind of some of the emotions that she must be going through, you know, how she'd like 
if it were possible for me to be the, the sick one and my little girl to be spared this and so on. All the kinds of things that a loving mum would think for her poor little daughter. When you really want to say, why, why my little Flo? Why me? Why us? And those two cameos are... Um, what's striking about them is that they're, they're not actually that unusual in the overall scheme of things. Mercifully such situations arise relatively frequently in a sense. It's not like they happen to all of us all the time, but all the time we're aware of somebody. We always have somebody on that prayer list on Sunday, don't we? Um, so what kind of questions do you do? Well, the first thing you do, um, perhaps we should pray. So let me pray briefly for them both. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we lift up again to you Pastor Wilkins and uh, little Flo Call and cry out to you for mercy upon them both. We're thankful, Father, that they're both in your hands and we entrust them to you, but with heavy hearts because uh, we'd rather the situation were different. We want to cry out, why should it be so? At the same time, as we're going to discover this evening, that's not a question that always gets a ready answer. But even, even though our passage tonight might not lead us to this conclusion, we know that your, your word encourages us to call on you for mercy, to the God of all healing and all comfort, to heal and comfort these people and their families. So we ask that you do that now for Pastor Wilkins, that you bring him back to full health and give him many years more of the faithful and fruitful service he's had for past decades. And little Flo, we pray that we would not have sorrow upon sorrow, but that we'd see her fully recovered. And we thank you for the doctors and the work that's been done over many years into this horrible disease. And we pray that an excellent and rapid and relatively pain-free treatment would be found for her. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And Solomon... Kohelet confronts the reality of the apparent arbitrariness and seeming unfairness of life most forcefully. And it's interesting, I think, that it happens here. You remember I mentioned um, back in the, near the beginning of these Bible studies and once or twice more on other occasions that uh, the author reveals his title, Kohelet, seven times in the book. And three times are at the beginning and three times are at the end. And then there's one in the middle. And at the heart of the book, when he reveals his name, it's at the end of the passage we just read. You noted it, I'm sure, in verse 27. This is what I found, says Kohelet. And it's in this passage that unravels both the cause of all the brokenness in the world in the shape of human sinfulness and also our experience of the consequences of that which is to say the injustice and the unfairness and the fact there seems to be no answer to the why questions and it's characteristic of our preacher the one who gathers the assembly together not to shy away from such questions and I was reading this 
uh, in preparation for tonight and looked at verse 14. And I genuinely thought there's a good chance we don't get past verse 14, which as usual is fine, but we we may get beyond it. Um, Where we're actually confronted with perhaps the most difficult aspect of this whole situation of all. Later on, we'll find it's not fair because there's a righteous man who suffers and an unrighteous man who prolongs his life and lives for many days. That doesn't seem fair. We find the observations about the unfairness of life later, but here we find something about the reason, the source of the the suffering and pain that we're sometimes confronted with. And it's really quite shocking. Verse 14, just look at it with me if you've got your Bibles open. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, well, just think what you're expecting. Hebrew parallelism. In the day of prosperity, joyful. In the day of adversity, sadness, sorrow, grief. That's what we're all expecting. And to readers trained in reading poetry, this is a moment where the content smashes the form of the poem. Because it's like uh, prosperity, joy. Adversity, consider. What? (laughs) It doesn't say joy, which would just be kind of like, well, I guess we'd have to wrestle with that if it said that. Rejoice always, Paul says. Maybe we'd address that another time. But in the day of adversity, you've got to stop and think about something. And you've got to think extremely hard about it. And the thing you've got to think about, it says consider, not just think. Consider, pause and reflect for as long as it takes us, like an hour maybe, which would take us to 18 minutes past seven, maybe that God has made the one as well as the other. Which is difficult enough. And then the final kind of slap around the back of the ego, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. So can you see this? It's a, a broken slice of Hebrew wisdom sayings in the day of prosperity rejoice adversity consider and then an expansion consider two things god made them both and the reason is so that you won't understand anything uh so (laughs) what the heck are we supposed to do about this I'm, i'm going to pause and have a little sip of my water and let you just chew on that a little bit and we'll, we may generate some questions and lines of inquiry I have some things I'd like to put before you to consider but I'm going to stop, have a think What you're, half of you are scribbling furiously perhaps furiously scribbling furiously um, maybe you could share something you've written or some thoughts you have, pause one second while you think because it does say consider Anne has a question. We'll wait just 30 seconds, see if any more form in your mind. Stick a paw in the air if you've got something you want to share with us just at this stage. Anne? 
All right, we'll start with you, Anne. Go ahead. This just seems weird. This just like, seems it weird. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Right. So it, it seems to jar with the creation mandate. Is this a fair summary? Let me let me try and paraphrase, and then I can see a few frowns. This will be interesting to see your thoughts on this. Mm. That the call to fill and subdue the earth, which God gave to Adam in Genesis one, and reiterated in Genesis nine to Noah, and which we still are. Uh, living under in Christ, requires us to understand, to be able to think about the future even. You know, you sow crops in expectation of something that will happen in the future. You invest money in your business in the expectation of what will happen. You invest in your training and your education in the expectation of what's going to happen in the future. And this says, yeah, the way that God does things is deliberately so that you won't know what's going to happen in the future, what will happen after him or may not find out anything that will be after him. It seems to be this frustrates the creation mandate. Which is, let me put, I'll make a note of this because I think these bullet points are going to come in thick and fast now. Hold on. I'm not always confident of my ability to keep in my mind all the different things you say. Uh, Aaron, yeah, thank you. Yes, so yes, yes. Is that how it reads in the I, I, uh, So the Blue Letter Bible misses out the, the phrase that will be. Um, I haven't got my Hebrew on me. I can't remember what it says. Is it just like he is missing or something? The, the, it's supplied. Excellent. Yeah, thank you. So um, Hebrew doesn't always use the verb to be when it is um, meant to be understood to be there. So Pastor Neil says, yeah, it's supplied in the translation. Now the question is, is it, ought it to be supplied? Should we understand it to be so that man will not find, find out anything after him? Or are we supposed to understand a kind of future-looking verb to be anything that will be after him? And uh, it's not obvious to me but I think, it, just in response to Nan's particular question, I don't think it makes that much difference to the meaning. Because if it doesn't say, that will be, after him, then after him is going to be temporal anyway, isn't it? It's anything temporarily following him. So even if the verb to be isn't supposed to be supplied in the translation, we're supposed to understand it's there. So I think the sense of it, in other words is God has done this so that we won't understand what's coming in the future. And does that make sense, Nan? I think so, right? Um, yeah, Emma. Excuse me, Pastor Jeffrey. Pastor Bruce would always remind me and say, uh, Emma, God does 10,000 things in a day and you will witness three. In hmm. my brain, I'm inserting that right here. Like that's kind of like my puzzle piece of which... 
I'm trying to make up. Is am I correct in trying to put that puzzle piece here, or am I? Hold on. Uh, I don't think you're confused any more than the rest of us. So Pastor Booth says God does 10,000 things in a day of which we will witness three. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? I mean, that's certainly true, and 10,000 is an understatement. Um, so does that fit with this? I, I actually think it does, and when we start digging into what I think it means, I think you'll see what I mean by that. Um, Mrs. Bennett and uh, Pastor Neil. Um, Pastor Neil, do you want to jump in? Okay, yeah. Nicole. Everyone's holding the door for everybody. This is very good. Yeah, go on, Nicole. Yeah. 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 I think that's that's why this verse is so important and potentially so rich. Because if we can understand why God considers it such a high priority that we should not understand, then we might be able to cope with our why questions a bit better. Does that make sense? You, you, why means I don't understand the rationale for this. And God's aim is that we should become not comfortable, but accepting of not understanding. So I think that's, that's why if we, I want to spend enough time here to try and pick that up. Now the hands are going up. Um, uh, let's just, yes, please, go to hear them all. Yeah, that's very helpful, isn't it? So Job is, so this doesn't make it simpler, but it at least gives us an angle to look at things from, doesn't it? Job didn't understand what God was doing, and we couldn't possibly understand what God was doing. To put it in Emma's terms and Pastor Booth's terms, um, the 10,000 things that God is doing, and Job only understands three. You know, my, my children are gone, all my wealth is destroyed, I'm covered in boils. That's what the Lord is doing. But God is doing more. And Job, yeah, Job doesn't get it. And he, he asks loads and loads and loads of questions, and then the Lord confronts him with all these questions coming back. Yeah. So Job will feature, I think, in our thoughts later this evening as well. Yeah, Sarah, and then keep going around. Yeah, Habakkuk 1.5. Who says Habakkuk and who says Habakkuk, by the way? Habakkuk. Do I need to learn to say Habakkuk as well? Habakkuk. Oh, it's certainly not Habakkuk in the Hebrew. It's probably Habakkuk. Anyway, sorry about that. Um, I, I, I think Habakkuk might be a nice place to go. Um, here, let, just go there briefly, because this will... Um, 
anticipate um, an angle on the answer to the question. So, sometimes, um, <laughs> let me into a preaching secret, okay? Sometimes you, you try to build tension by not revealing the answer until the end. Um, sometimes that's pastorally irresponsible. And where pain and suffering are involved, I think there's a case for saying, just cut to the chase early enough that people don't despair. So just look with me at Habakkuk, sorry, Habakkuk. Um, and I'll just remind you of what happens. Uh, so Habakkuk chapter 1, Habakkuk chapter 1, sorry. Um, so if you can't find it, um, Jonah, Mike, and Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, it's, you got it. It's all kind of in the middle of the Bible somewhere. Uh, after all the books you've heard of and before a couple of little books you've heard of. Um, Habakkuk sees in verses 2 to 4 the land of Israel, or Judah specifically, um, torn apart by ungodliness. And he, he asks God, how long will you allow this to continue? How long shall I cry for help, verse 2, and you will not hear, or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me look at iniquity? Why do you, make me to- Why do you tolerate wrong? How do you put up with all this stuff? And this is the story of Judah and Israel in the dark days of the end of the monarchy. And then the Lord's answer is, verse 5, look among the nations and see and wonder and be astounded. For I'm, this is the quote that Sarah remembered, well done. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe even if I told you. So as Emma, it's your point. It's Pastor Booth's right. We see three things, violence, iniquity, destruction. And we're like, why are you doing this? And the Lord's saying, well, I'm doing something. Like, if <laughs> you would not believe it if I told you this. Behold, but I'll tell you anyway. Behold means see or look. I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Chaldeans, the Babylonians. And he got this long description of all the Chaldean army and their power. And he says, they all come for violence, bent on destruction, verse 9. And they, they're going to just demolish everything. And that's God's answer to the injustice of the ungodliness of Israel. I'm going to raise up a, a violent pagan nation to smash all these ungodly people to bits. <laughs> and Habakkuk's just like, well, how is that an answer? Um, uh, verse 12, second half of verse 12. O Lord, you have ordained them for judgment. You have established them for reproof. Um, you who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent while the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? How can you, like if, if Judah and Israel being ungodly is a problem, why is Babylonian wickedness a solution? And beginning of chapter two, he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand around and wait until you give me an answer to this. I, I'm not going anywhere. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what you're going to say and what you will answer concerning my complaint. And then you get the dramatic centre of the vision and you know where you've seen this before. And so don't shout out, but put your hands up when you realise where this is quoted in, in the New Testament. The Lord answered me, 
Okay, here it is. Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it or so that the reader may run with it. It's ambiguous Hebrew. Or not ambiguous, just ambiguous to me. I don't know what it means. Um, For still the vision awaits its appointed time and hastens to the end. It will not lie. It seems slow. Wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. I don't know who that's talking about, but here's the key quote. Verse 4. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Any light bulbs go on? Where have you seen that before? The righteous shall live by his faith. Hands up if you recognize it from somewhere. Where have you seen it before? Romans. Romans 1. Now, yeah, one seventeen, like the theme text for the entire book of Romans, which is the one that's supposed to be like the one that makes sense of the whole of the New Testament. <laughs> Head exploding emoji. Um, now, what it means in this context is something like this. The, the righteous one will receive life by trusting in the Lord in the midst of all this stuff that he doesn't understand. You don't understand why God's allowing the injustice of Israel. You don't understand why a pagan nation that's even worse is any solution. Trust me, I'm doing something amazing here. You're not seeing, you can't even imagine. You will live if you trust me. Just trust me. And then you'll live when the pagan nation smashes to bits the ungodly nation of Israel. So you turn to Romans, turn forward to me like a few books in your Bible. For it's Romans 1.16, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the, to the Greek. So we're saved through the gospel if we believe. Now, what text is Paul going to quote to explain what he means by believing in this context? For in, the, in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written... The righteous shall live by faith. That faith. So the faith that we're called to have in the gospel is analogous somehow to the faith that Habakkuk and his hearers were called to have. In a day when the ungodly people of Israel were about to be smashed to bits by an even more ungodly pagan nation. So the gospel is the announcement that Jesus is the Lord, the Messiah, and all Israel is called to put their trust in him in a context when all Israel is actually being really, really ungodly and violent and wicked. And God says, you'll live if you have faith, where faith means trusting God when he's about to raise up a pagan nation to smash the ungodly Israelites to bits, which is exactly what he did 40 years later. He brought to an end the old covenant order decisively by acting in judgment against Israel's temple, which had become corrupt. And so decisively ended that era of history and opened the stage of history for the gospel to go forth to the nations. You'll live by faith. If you can just trust you first century Israelites who believe in Jesus now in 55 AD or whenever this was written, you've just got to trust that God is doing something. You might not understand it because God's doing 10,000 things and you can only see three. You'll live 
if you have faith. So this living by faith thing is about trusting that God's doing something righteous to save his people when he does so by bringing a pagan nation to smash ungodliness. And just more broadly, the the Lord, when you don't understand either the suffering of your own people or the violence that God seems to be allowing or even bringing to pass, we're called to trust that even in those circumstances, we are, God is doing something wonderful. So just thinking about the, the two, the two um, scenarios we depicted earlier, they are like a little microcosm of the gospel. In, in the gospel, we're called to trust that God's doing something wonderful by allowing an innocent man to be unjustly executed. How can that be? Oh, but you trust in God's ways. With the Calls and the Vrezos and their friends and to a limited extent all of us and the, the Wilkins family, they're called to trust that God is doing something wonderful even in the circumstances when the suffering seems perplexing and, and without justification. And that trust is like a, a little mirror image or shadow of gospel trust. Now let me pause there because I've, I've tried to feed a lot of ideas into that. Do, does that make sense to you guys or does it sound like a confusing kind of tangle of ideas? It's not confusing, yeah. In short, the, the faith we're called to have in circumstances that seem unfair is precisely an image of gospel faith. We, we trust in a saviour who is unfairly treated, unfairly suffered, unfairly killed. And we're so used to that that we just we think, oh, I'm trusting in Jesus. No, we're, we're trusting that God did something wonderful by allowing the violent execution of an innocent man. So now we're trusting that God is doing something wonderful by uh, the precious little Florence and the heartache of her parents as they watch her you know, in the hospital with all the wires connected, or Pastor Wilkins similarly, and so many countless others who you know. Are you with me? So... You, do you really understand how all this works? Obviously not. And what we call to faith. Yeah. Sometimes, like just the example you gave, um, sometimes God says, "This is what's going to happen." And he spells it out. Mm. Yeah. We don't know. And it's, it's puzzling because sometimes knowing, okay, that we're going to be 
be God 70 years and then we'll come back. You know, that's, that's yeah, helpful. Yeah, yeah. And other times God must think it would be better for them not to know for right. some weird reason. But, but we can pursue that further. So just to re- let me rephrase the question. Tell me if you're happy with this. Um, sometimes God tells us what he's doing and how long it's going to last. And, you know, three months of plague or um, three days of, of famine, three months of famine, three months of plague, you know, whatever. Sometimes he doesn't tell us. Why the difference? Why does God sometimes tell us what he's doing in these difficult and painful circumstances? Yes, Teresa. That's, I think that's profoundly true. That, again, is another really helpful summary. We, I, I don't want to try and paraphrase what you said. Actually, I should for the sake of people here. Um, uh, God, is this fair? Um, the, the closest walk you've had with the Lord has been in the hardest times. And um, the Lord doesn't tell us sometimes so that we'll cling to him. Is that, that's a reasonable paraphrase here. Now, that is actually, again, another wonderful anticipation of where we're going. Um, this, this is just one of those scenarios where I want to give you the answer so you don't... I don't want anybody to go home and think, oh, it's too late, didn't get to ask my question, I went home confused. This is not. A, we don't want to go home confused here. We're going to be confused because 10,000 things, God's doing three that we understand, but it's, we need to have that in our minds, that we trust God, that he's doing something wonderful in the dark times. Romans 1, Habakkuk 2. And your insight, Teresa, that has the effect of drawing us closer to God, which is what he wanted. Now, we're, getting, we're being led back now to Ecclesiastes. What he wants is us to be led closer to him. He doesn't particularly want us to understand the whole of history. God does this so that people will not understand. You see? Yeah, he wants you to not understand because then you just be preoccupied with trying to understand he wants something else from us he wants us to walk humbly and closely with him so thank you that's really really helpful um aaron pardon me you have your hand up so mr robertson said um would it be appropriate to hear kohelet circling back to the big theme of chapter three quote there's a time for and especially 311 he has done everything well in his time so that i'm saying that quote so that man can't find out the word god has done from the beginning to the end i guess that's part of the collection God embeds the purposeful mystery in all he does, both in property and in So hearing echoes of chapter 3. Yeah, yeah absolutely. 3, yeah, 311. Um, yes, God's put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Yeah, we, we lack the comprehensive vision of what God has done from the beginning to the end. We see glimpses. And I think that's, that's what's happening with the partial pictures. Now, God has shown us a lot about what he was doing in the, in the execution of the innocent Galilean carpenter's son. 
He's shown us a lot of what he was doing through the Babylonian invasion of Judah. He's shown us very little about what he's doing in these two present circumstances. So what we're supposed to do is to figure out what kinds of things might he be doing and what kinds of ways ought we to react in. You know, he, he shows us Job, not because we're all like Job whenever we suffer hardship, but because, well, that, that's one of the options. And he shows us Jesus, you know, a man who's innocent and patient suffering brought redemption and life to many. Not because that's what he's always doing, but well, it's one of the options. Um, he shows us the people of Judah during the exile, again, because that's one of the options. He shows us Daniel, he shows us Joseph, he shows us David in the wilderness, he shows us um, Naomi broken at the end of Ruth chapter 1. Uh, he shows us all these little cameos of, of human loss. And then he'll peel back, the, I want to peel back the curtain behind me, say, this is what I'm doing here. And it's like an invitation to try and figure out, well, what, what might God be doing? I don't know. But we trust that he's doing something because we've seen he could do this or he could do that or he could do this or he could do that. So I guess he must be doing something. Okay. Pastor Neil, I think, you might have had your hand up about 20 minutes ago before you patiently waited for everybody else to contribute. Do you want to jump in with any thoughts? Sure. Thank you. Okay. I know you'll shout if you want to. That's great. Let me... Um, let me suggest we go back to Ecclesiastes. I just want to unpick this verse a bit more, show you a couple more things. We've, we've talked about the so-called problem of evil, haven't we? The, the philosophical problem of evil. Have we talked about this? I know I've talked about it with Bible and theology guys. Um, the problem of... Let me just briefly, briefly um, uh, sketch it for you again. In fact, I could literally sketch it, if you'll bear with me. Sorry about this. Right. The problem of evil, so-called, arises because of the simultaneous biblical affirmations of those three statements that are on the board there. Can you read all those? I know my writing is so terrible, you probably can't. God is good, and God is sovereign, and evil is real. So because those three things are true, we're left with this puzzle that evil really exists in a world where God is perfectly good and yet he's in control of everything. So where does all the evil come from? And I'll grab this because I'll need it in a second. The problem of evil is that where does all the evil come from? But the problem of the experience of evil is actually what we feel most of the time. Most people don't lie awake at night wondering about the problem of evil. I mean, if you do, see Pastor Neil later. But lots of people lie awake at night worrying about the actual experience of evil. And it would be all so simple to solve the problem 
if you could, just chop off one of these corners. God is not sovereign. All right, so evil is real and God is good, but God couldn't do anything about it. Or you could chop off God is good. You know, evil is real and God is sovereign, but he's a, a maniac. Or you chop off this. You know, God is good and God is sovereign and there's not really any evil in the world anyway. But the problem is that scripture shouts and screams, all of them, really, really, really loudly. It won't let you deny any of them. And one of the best books, the best book I've read on this subject, and I think probably, I can't imagine many books being much better than this. I'm sure there is lots of good stuff. There's stuff in Augustine, there's stuff in Jonathan Edwards, there's stuff in Calvin about this. But Henri Blochet, a French Reformed theologian, wrote a book called Evil and the Cross. Here we are. Evil and the Cross. Now, it's not an easy book. Okay, so this is not, I'll grab this and read it at bedtime. But um, he is so richly soaked in Bible and theology and philosophy. And he digs into the history of philosophical attempts to solve the problem of evil by each of these three methods. So the, the, uh, the chapter headings... Um, uh, chapters one, two, and three basically are these two, these three options. And he basically shows that none of them work. Then he talks about what scripture says in chapter four. And then in chapter five, he outlines, it's not a solution, but, but what it does is he shows how the cross, because evil and the cross, how the cross brings all of these together and sort of resolves them. And I, I've drawn this little diagram at the front of the book, because I found this so helpful. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to write the Bible verses on here, just because I think it might help all of us. Ah, these pens are stuck in my pocket. So as examples of where Scripture affirms each of these things, for example, God is sovereign, Ephesians 1.11, speaks of the God who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. You know, try and squeeze a denial of God's sovereignty into the universe once you've got that in the universe. It's just, and there are many texts that speak in this way about God being sovereign over all things. Can the guys on the, the thing? Yeah. If I do that, and then if I stand here, how's that? This one or this one? That big one. That's much better. Right. Thank you. Perfect, Aaron. Thank you. So Ephesians 1.11, God works out everything in conformity with the purposes of his will. So good luck denying the, the sovereignty of God. Um, uh, Habakkuk 1.3. Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Habakkuk saw. I was digging a bit deeper into this. Um, the, the, the word evil appears in the Bible quite a lot, uh, which is a bit unnerving. The first four times it appears, it appears in relation to the, the knowledge of good and evil or the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Genesis 1, 
and Genesis 2. Um, oh, no, sorry, Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. I'm getting mixed up. Genesis 2, Genesis 3, two times in each chapter. Then the, the next time it appears is in Genesis 6, 5. And it's a very interesting text because the first time the word evil, it's the Hebrew word ra, is used to describe a thing rather than just in the name of the tree. In Genesis 6, 5, remember what Genesis 6, 5 says? Yes. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the, in the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. That's a fairly damning indictment of human character, right? Genesis 6, 5. The first time that the word evil is used to describe anything in creation, it's every inclination of the thoughts of his heart is only evil all the time. It's talking about sinful humanity. So don't be telling me that evil isn't real. And of course, the, the, the place where evil is found is... Well, Genesis 6, 5, um, God made men upright, but they've sought out many schemes. That's where we're going in this whole section. So verse 14 really is the key to the whole thing, all the way down to verse 27. And then, of course, the goodness of God. Um, Your eyes um, are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong, Habakkuk 1.13. Again, Habakkuk... um, provides, again, not the answer, but some insight on this. Even as he looks at the evil of the world around him, he says, your eyes are so pure, you can't look at evil. You can't tolerate wrong. So scripture won't be doing with this cheap shot solution that some of the greatest philosophers in the history of the world have attempted um, to chop off one of the corners of these triangles. And what it does is it combines them in one place, and you know where that place is because the title of the book. Titus 2.14, Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. And just think about that for a second. Christ gave himself. Not Christ was, you know, accidentally stymied in his mission and ended up being crucified, what a shame. Christ gave himself, the sovereignty of God, to redeem us from all wickedness. No compromise. It's not Christ gave himself because, you know, he loves us and we're not so bad really. You don't help people by healing their wound lightly. Titus 2.14 is wickedness that we need to be redeemed from. And to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. So you've got this, I mean, the risk of having a diagram that's a bit, um, it's not supposed to be a cliche diagram, but the one place where you see the goodness of God and the wickedness of human sin, and the unstoppable sovereignty of God the King is at the cross. There's nowhere else where you see it more, all those things in closer proximity. And so (laughs) this is why the title of the book is such a powerful title. 
because the place where you see the problem affirmed most unequivocally is the place where the problem is solved. Well, when I say solved, solved, quote marks. It's solved in the sense that the seed which will grow into its solution is planted. We, we still live in the, um, the awaiting the resurrection. But the cross and resurrection of Jesus are the place where the new world has broken into this one. And so we're still, we still have the, the, um, the, the rags of death still sort of hang on our sort of mangy bodies while we await the resurrection of our bodies and the full participation in the fruit of the cross. But the cross and the resurrection of Jesus are the, the solution to this. There will be no more crying or mourning or pain. And whatever happens to Pastor Wilkins, um, we'll be united with him forever in the resurrection because of the cross of Jesus. So it's you know, 2,000 years of the most sophisticated philosophy on the face of the planet. And Titus 2.14 just kicks it into the long grass so far that it's just gone. And simultaneously provides this place of comfort. Um, teaching us how to, how to trust in painful circumstances by reminding us the way you trust in painful circumstances is by the way you trust Jesus in the first place. Because remember what I said about the analogy between the faith that God is doing something here and the faith that God was doing something there at Calvary. So people talk about the problem of evil, I think... I, I, I actually like it as a philosophical way in to talking about what Jesus has done because it, it highlights these big um, worldview-ish and philosophical themes, but also I think does provide some comfort and not yeah maybe clarity through the mist. So, okay, let me pause a second. Um, Anne has got a question. I can tell now to know this young lady a bit better. Any other, but we'll go to Anne, and then if you've got other questions, yeah, go ahead. This is an awful lot like Sam's perspective handle, except it seems like there's two normatives which are shared in John's problem, and one existential situation of the evil of will. I'm very confused. I don't even know if I'm making a statement. Yeah. Um, you might be. Um, I think probably what I'd say is that frames... Um, perspectives each map onto each of these poles. That's probably the best way of doing it. Um, because this looks to me like too basic and foundational a philosophical question that any one of them would be reducible to just one of the perspectives. I think you could say sovereignty is situational, Goodness is normative because and it was good and it was good words spoken to declare that and evil is an existential reality in the human heart. So maybe there's maybe if you were trying to map John Frame onto this, maybe that's what you do. But I'd also want to say evil is the denial of God's word and it's the corruption and twisting of created goodness. It's a situational alteration. You with me? So um, I don't want to, it's neat 
perhaps too neat. Yeah. Um, apologies to the rest of you who are thinking, who's John Frame and what's the situational perspective? Ask, um, um, or uh, tune into the ethics lectures and discussions on the church website, which are freely available for download um, from the Bible and theology classes. And there you'll hear more of Anne and her classmates talking about this. Um, should, we, should we jump into, into Ecclesiastes 7 again? We might find now, I think, that the passage opens up a little bit, and I don't think we'll move through it quickly, because when do we ever do that? But we might, we might find that there's some light been shed on it. I've got an illustration for you that I think helps, just with verse 14 before we move on. Um, think of yourself on a journey. Let, I'll finish the illustration, then Aaron's got a question. Yeah, so thanks to whoever put it. You're on a journey and the Lord is, is holding the map and holding you by the hand and you're, you're somewhat blind. You can't really see because mist, hevel everywhere. And you so want to look at the map. I want to know where we're going. And you so wish that you could see through the mist, but you can't. So what, what's the wise thing to do? You get really frustrated let go of my hand like some two-year-old in Walmart. Or you say, you know what, I can't see very well and I wouldn't be able to read the map even if it was shown to me, so I'm just going to hold tight. And I think that's, you know, God has withheld the map from us and placed us in the mist so that we won't know, so that we'll cling to him and hold his hand tighter. So I, I, I pray, especially for Daniel and Mercy and for the Wilkins family and and for others we know, actually, who have, you know, unwell or, or unexpectedly ill, that that's actually their experience. And we know that God can use those circumstances in that way. It's one of those 10,000 things. So, once you've got that in place... Oh, Erin, you had a question. Um, here from, from Nan. Uh, she said, would you say that this, quote, so that man may not understand, in quote, goes once again to the garden because yeah 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 so man may not find out it's like a frustration of adam and eve's attempt to get knowledge of good and evil um yeah i think perhaps that's so and even if it's not a direct allusion in the text i think definitely our imperfect knowledge is because of our impatient grasping, or Adam's impatient grasping for knowledge. Yeah, we, we now only see as through a mirror dimly. And that's because of the fallenness of the world in which the grasping for illicit knowledge was the cause of our being plunged into sin, and knowledge of good and evil in particular, which is more than just knowing things, it's... Um, if, once you've got that in place, all, and there's some philosophy in the background and, and a big Bible picture, and we, we sort of connected what we're talking about to the gospel in the sense of the unfolding of Israel's history and the declaration of the gospel in Romans and then Titus 2.14 and other texts that speak of what Christ did. Now then you look at verse 15. So and what is it? Well, this is just an example, not just. It is a very painful to contemplate example of the adversity. We've been thinking of a couple of examples of adversity this evening, but verse 15, in my vain life I've seen everything. Note of cynicism perhaps is creeping into his voice. 
seen everything. And in a minute, you're going to see one of the things he's seen, which is his own stupid fault. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. You know, picture the, um, the violent um, gang of 20-something youths who beat up an old man while he's mowing his neighbor's lawn and leave him bleeding on the sidewalk and they don't get caught because the people who know where they live and who they are didn't want to tell the police because they might be next. And that's, that's the sort of thing that happens all the time. I made that story up, but it's not exactly difficult to believe, is it? It's, there's a righteous man who perishes and there's a bunch of wicked men who, who do fine. Now, that's, if that happened to your granddad, how do you feel about that? That's not fair. It's like, what? How long will you tolerate wrong, O oh Lord? You see? So you jump, you're then jumping back into Habakkuk chapter 1 and you go through the whole thought process again. All of the experiences of injustice that we experience are an invitation to, in one sense, they're an invitation to get on that thought process and work your way through the, um, the logic, so to speak, of where we've been thinking through so far. Now, I don't know what to make of this. I'm so glad Pastor Neil is here. Because verse 16, be not overly righteous. <laughs> and, <laughs> and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked. Well, what, should you be a bit wicked? I don't know. Neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this and from that withhold not your hand for the one who fears God shall come out from both of them wisdom gives strength to a wise man more than ten rulers are in a city surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins so I Sarah knows the answer excellent ask a teenager you have a question is it like the Pharisees like with the um, don't be too righteous thing yeah, I wonder. What do you think? I mean, what, it kind of would make sense, wouldn't it? That don't be overly righteous, being, don't be self-righteous. Don't be righteous in your own sight. Don't get yourself in a position where you start thinking that you're so righteous. Maybe. I've got to say the problem is I feel like I'm reading in a foreign context to this. That, that would make, that's just makes so much sense of it, it feels a bit too convenient. And Pastor Neil is studiously avoiding my glances. And Ah, there we are, look. You, you, I know you're looking at the word, trying to figure out what it means, right? <laughs> Have you got... Help me, brother. Wait, Pastor Neil was on a hospital visit this afternoon, guess what? And so when I got to, you know, working through this, I thought, I wonder where my fellow... Oh, he's gone. So I was going to ask you what you thought about this. So now I'm going to ask you, what do you think about this? You'll get back to me. Let me circle back. Yeah. My, my old, uh, old Testament and Hebrew prof used to have a, a physical book with awaiting further light written on the cover. 
literally, he just write all the questions in there he didn't know the answer to. And he, he said we should all get one. So I got a Google Drive doc. <laughs> and, um, Mrs. Fraser, yes. Corban, Matthew, Mark 7, yeah, yeah. So the idea of um, righteously, you're so heavy minded, you're no earthly good, you know, I'm not going to go to work and spend all my life sitting here praying. Um, yeah. I'm going to go live on a mountaintop and not provide for my family because I'm close to the Is it possible? I, I actually like the idea of that. So the, there's a couple of things. The Corban regulation where the Pharisees evaded, in Mark 7, evaded their responsibilities to their parents, to look after their parents, by notionally dedicating the money that they should have given to their parents to the temple. And whether they actually had to give it to the temple or not is debatable. even, Even if they did, they could have got it back because they received income from there. So that's a kind of righteousness which is not really righteous at all. But I'm not sure, but the other suggestion just just give us that again because i think that has something um like i'm going to quit my job and just yeah. stay home and pray all the time or right go live on a mountaintop even though i have a wife and kids that yes will suffer because i don't have an income but i want to be close to god so i'm going to go and do that right more righteous than everyday life of going to a secular job yeah i i think that has uh, a lot to commend it. And here's why. Because it seems to be grounded in the nitty-gritty of life, like Ecclesiastes is. So, just again, for the sake of people at home, might not have heard that. There's a kind of hyper-pious righteousness, which is actually completely lacking in perspective and in a recognition of the, the breadth of righteousness. So, prayer is righteous. Excellent. So, I'm just going to pray all the time. No. You've got to stop praying and go to work. I've, I've encouraged people not to come to Bible study because of the particular time that they're at in their life with um, a new baby or uh, other responsibilities, which mean that it would be better for them not to listen in or not to come here, but to, to discharge those responsibilities. Now, most of us probably are sufficiently slack with our prayer life and with our Bible reading habits that we could probably afford to pick up our game and spend a bit less time doing other more diffuse activities on Facebook or Minecraft or whatever else. But there is a, there is a, there is a kind of mentality that is all big into theology um, while there's a two-foot-high pile of dirty dishes in the sink and the, the kitchen floor needs wiping. But, hey, you're on the front porch. What are you looking at me for? <laughs> My lovely wife. <laughs> no, no, what have I done? Preach against yourself. There, there are stories in the 18th century of preachers being converted by their own preaching. <laughs> it's always unnerving. In J.C. Ryle's eight Christian, Christian leaders of the 18th century. So, yeah, there is that, I think, being overly righteous. Um, and now the hands are going up. Jack Claghorn's got his hand up, and Sarah Bennett has been very patiently waiting. Can we come to you, Sarah, in just one moment after we go ladies first? Yeah. Um, just, just one second, yeah, Jack? Yeah, go ahead, Sarah.
Yeah, so it means righteousness and foolishness become the same. Yes, I think that's right. In the, the, it's, um, there's a kind of attitude to life which is, and uh, this is where the core man and the um, uh, two heavenly minded idea come together, where um, a person looks at his, his righteousness, a full, mature, wise, rich, in the right sense, sacrificial life and they zoom in on this tiny little bit of it and they make that everything and it's like the kind of person who says um of certain kinds of food are good and then proceed to demolish five pounds of them a day you know carrots are good for you well carrots carrots, carrots, carrots. you know it's just there's a kind of obsessive lack of perspective sometimes yeah i want to go to jack and then come to you aaron uh master clackhorn here Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's the point of getting a head full of knowledge if you're not going into the world and using it? And of course, here's the wonderful thing: like, you don't have to choose. Like, you can get you can get a ton of Bible in your head in half an hour if you put your phone in another room and 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 approach it thoughtfully, and and then you can go and do your schoolwork, and then you can go and help Dad clear out the backyard, and then you can help your sisters with the kitchen, and then you can go and walk the dog and then you can um, tidy up the mess that Melody's made and then you can have an amazingly fruitful day and actually do all these things. But you have to have the breadth of perspective. And I, I'm, I admire men particularly because I, I look at men as role models personally because guess what, I'm a man. Um, I admire men who manage to combine all those different things, men who are uh, intellectually thoughtful but also hardworking and who love their wives and seem always to have time for their children. And then if you phone them because you've got a question, they've always got time to talk, but they somehow manage to be productive and get like 10 hours of work done a day. It's just, it's, I find it tremendously stirring and invigorating to see a full life like that. Um, and you're what, 12, 13, yeah? I mean, we would all love to be your age so we could just have another crack at it. And you've got your life before you, my young Padwan. <laughs> and I, I love having you in our Bible classes. You know, you're just, it's just great to see your son, Joel, growing up and um, your daughters as well. And, and just getting to grips with the learning and then putting it into practice. You really want to put it into practice. Let me, this, this is kind of off topic, but apply, applied, I think. Um, Fellowship meals. Here's a classic example, right? We're growing, 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 growing as a church. And actually, if anything, a smaller number of people are coming forward to help with all the practical tasks that need doing, of which there are now more in an increasingly confined space in the kitchen. I, it would be awesome if there was an army of hardworking teenagers um, standing to attention, ready to be put to work by the deacons and their wives. Um, I don't know what they get you to do. I'll leave that to them. But that's, that's the kind of roundedness of character, isn't it? And look at Mrs. Fraser again. Where you, we want you deep in the word and 
but not overly righteous. Now, it makes sense of it now, doesn't it? I think that there might be something in that. Yeah, um, uh, listen then, and then Aaron. Yeah, go ahead. Yes, I don't know. And so, why, why it comes after verse 15. I, I wonder if it is... I, I, I'm looking forward to hearing... By the way, we're not going to finish this passage today. We'll pick it up next week and we'll go on to, to chapter 8. So don't worry, we're not going to try and squeeze it into three minutes. I'd love... Pastor Neil, can, can we chat about this in the next few days and see if we get anywhere and maybe come back with some ideas together? Let's do that. I, I don't know, though, really. Um, I'm, there might be a note of cynicism about it. Uh, it might be... Yeah, that, Sarah... Uh, it's got, it might be that he is so overly righteous that tomorrow someone's baptized mm-hmm. just for being so haughty and maybe people that being loved really weren't that awful. They just got so fed up with him. Right, right. Um, it, it, there's, a, there's a way of being righteous. Let me try and paraphrase it, what you said. There's a way of being righteous which is just kind of hoity, hoity-toity, we say in England, like parading your righteousness, which is actually calculated to irritate people. Um, overly righteous, like making a big thing out of your righteousness. Parading your righteousness before men. Don't be overly righteous in that sense. Maybe, yeah. How is it when you first brought up the Pharisees how Christ said, I didn't come to save the righteous people. Yeah, that, that's... It's, yeah, it's sort of like that where if you believe you're righteous and you're, you know, haughty, then you're, you're not going to be saved, right? Because yeah. The humble will get saved. Yeah. Jesus didn't come to, to call the righteous. So if you're righteous, you don't qualify. That's, um, and then it says, but don't be overly wicked either. I mean, you're wicked enough already. There's not a righteous man on earth who does what's right and never sins. So you don't need to try hard to be right, to be wicked. You're, you're perfectly wicked enough. That's okay. That will then make sense. I, but all of these things seem to me possible. None of them. I, I, that seems to me perhaps the best yet, um, with a little dose of some of these ideas as well. But I'm going to go to Pastor Neil and um, buy him a cup of coffee, then come back and tell you what he said. On which note, it's uh, 18 minutes past seven. So, sorry, we're going to finish. Um, thank you for your... There was a question down there. Was there... Aaron, somebody on Zoom had a question. Um, yes, the man said, he, kind of going back a little bit, the overly wise destroys himself, themselves while the overly wicked die before their time. Is that a callback to 2.14? The wise while seeing needs the same image of the fool while blind. Thank you, Zoomers and Nan, for that question. Um, 2.14, yes. The other details, not sure. Um, I'm going to get with Pastor Neil and see what he thinks. And we're going to come back next week, Lord willing, and... We'll pick up this passage and the next chapter and try and scoop up some of the... We'll see some of the same themes. We'll see a bunch of new things. We'll have cause to examine Solomon's life 
and his wife, sorry, <clears throat> wives, plural, and then you'll start to see how this book arose for Solomon. Why, why is Solomon writing a book about the vanity of life? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because that most precious thing he went and made a train wreck out of. So, all right, we're going to pray. Let's pray together. Merciful Father, we cry to you for your kindness to be showered upon those whom we've named this evening, Pastor Wilkins and little Florence and her family, Daniel and Mercy in particular, and their grandparents, Doug and Becky. Watch over them and bring them back to full health, we pray. And even as we have contemplated somewhat from a distance the day of adversity, teach us to remember that you've made that day as well as the day of prosperity and that you call us not to find out everything that will happen, but to cling to you. Make us wise in and through our studies, we pray, that we would not be overly righteous in that uh, sense of absorbed in bookishness and lacking perspective and wisdom. And may we be those who are a comfort to others, a joy to be with and pleasing to you, because we walk in faithfulness to you. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you as ever, everybody. Appreciate you all very much. God bless you. Bye for now.